Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and we are back. Yes, I know the episodes are getting a little bit more sporadic, but I have been focusing on another project right now, the Sunstone Mormon History podcast, where my co-host Brian Buchanan and I, we go over all of the Mormon history or basically doing with Mormon history what we've done with this podcast which is tell the chronological history of Mormonism as best we can. And we bring on the most amazing top scholars in their field. And you should check it out at sunstone.org. So that is why these are getting less and less frequent. But I am not giving up on the podcast yet. And so hopefully you aren't either. And it doesn't seem like you are. People are still listening. Our downloads are still growing, which is insane to me. I can't understand why people would keep listening to this. But thank you. It means a lot to me. Uh, today... We're coming back for something I've been wanting to talk about for so, so, so long because it's a story that is interesting to me personally because it involves a lot of my ancestors and I just think it's a fascinating and important history and it's a story of the Walker War and it's it's very much tied in with our Mormon heritage and Mormon identity. And so I'm bringing on scholar and historian Ryan Wimmer. Ryan, can you say hello? Hi, everybody. Okay, so tell us tell us about yourself. Why why did you choose this topic for your master's thesis? Um, well, you know, I um got into graduate school at BYU and I'd always it, it was pretty hard to come up with a subject. I'd always tried to keep, you know, Mormon history was always my large biggest interest, but you know, there, there's not a whole lot of places to go if that's your main interest. So I was trying to find something that could do Mormon history along with uh, something a little bit broader. And so, you know, when I was at the University of Utah for my bachelor's degree, I did my, I did it on topaz and citizens of Utah's relations with uh, the Japanese during that, during the internment time. The reason I had chosen that was that kept, I could still do a little bit of Mormon history, but it was also Western America. That was part of what got me into the Walker War was I kept going over in my head on, I needed something to keep it relevant to the American West as well as something related to LDS history. And my uh, chair, Brian Cannon, actually suggested possibly you know, something to do with Native Americans and he threw out the Walker War. And I, so I read a little bit about it and thought, yeah, this is uh, what I want to do. For me, it's such a fascinating and really kind of complicated topic. And growing up as a Mormon, especially in Utah, we didn't really ever hear about it. I mean, maybe the term Walker War is familiar to some, but that's really the extent of it. People know that there were conflicts with you know, the American Indians that were residing in the Great Basin. But that's about it. So why don't we get into it? Uh, there's a lot to talk about tonight. So why don't we start with, are you okay just sort of popping off the major players that would be involved in these conflicts? Yeah, well, I mean, first and foremost, you got Brigham Young kind of standing at the head of the Mormon side of things. And then you got Chief Wakara, who, you know, he was... His his position among the Utes is kind of complicated. He was part of a sort of a joining of different bands. They called it the uh, the Ute Confederacy, and in that he was known as the uh, War Chief. 
and Soviet was kind of your, your head chief. And, and I don't know how functional that really was. It doesn't seem to have really functioned much. And I don't, I don't think too many people know much uh, how much it functioned either. But he did have his own band. There's multiple different spellings to it. And I've heard it pronounced several different ways. The Chevrolets is the main way I've heard it pronounced. And that was his band. And he very much embraced the white way of life. He took on horses and used that to kind of bully a lot of people. He definitely was a power seeker. You also had his, uh, well, I mean, they call him his brother. You, it's, you never know if it's actually blood brother or, they, or just, just a title, but Arapine, he was, um, greatly involved in this. And then you also have Daniel H. Wells. He was the lieutenant general of the Tom militia. And down south, you had Colonel Peter Conover. He was over the area in Provo. And he played, plays a major role as, as well as Stephen Markham, you know, going down further south. Um, he was a, big player in this and then then you got james ivy the guy who basically starts the whole thing well uh, it's more complicated than that i don't want to say he actually started the whole thing uh shower old cats that is the native american that ivy kills and there i mean there's you know i would going through the uh utah militia paper correspondence i mean there's there's a lot of there was a lot of militia commanders involved, and I was sure whether might want me to name all of those. No, but. no. So let's start with this. When the Mormons arrive, shortly before the Mormons arrive, can you describe sort of the landscape of this area, how these tribes would have functioned, and what they would have been doing before the Mormons arrive? Yeah, you have the um, the the Utes. They were, you know, for their well, they were kind of south of Point of Mountain around Utah Lake. And I actually have a map in my thesis, kind of showing kind of the landscape north north uh, up around the Ogden area. You have the Shoshones, you know, all the way up uh, into Idaho, and then you have the the Utes. You know, and there's a bunch of different Ute bands. That dom- dominated lots of central, okay, the north, from basically from Provo down through central Utah, all the way down. R- really, they were around all the way to St. George, well, and over into Colorado, several in the Uinta Basin area. Then, yeah, down also around St. George, you have the Navajos. They, they don't play too much of a part in uh, lots of the conflicts. And the Paiutes are also south, down around the Cedar City, St. George area. And out, out west, you have the Go-Shoot bands. So when, when before the Mormons arrived, uh, Salt Lake Valley, there really wasn't many uh, Native Americans occupying the Salt Lake Valley. That, that said, Jared Farmer, who... Uh, wrote a book some years ago, probably about 10 years ago. He mentions that he does believe that there were some small nomadic bands roaming around the Salt Lake Valley. In general, though, there wasn't a lot of uh, Native Americans in in the actual valley. Both the Shoshone and the Utes 
claimed it was theirs. You know, they, they were they weren't exactly friends, and, and so that that's kind of what what you had just before the Mormons get here. And you know, when they get here, both the Shoshone and the Utes really w- were trying to get the trust of the Mormons because they wanted them on their side to help conquer the other ones. And, you know, the young wouldn't uh, really pick a side. He, he pretty much stayed neutral and just tried to be on a cooperative relationship with both. And so that's kind of what you had. Okay. And so my understanding based on like Ned Blackhawk stuff too, is that there was a thriving slave trade that had been happening with the Utes and the Spanish for centuries, basically. And oh, the- yeah. oh, yeah. You, you want, want to talk, talk about, about that? The- yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's, a, that's a huge topic. Yeah, so th- there's some debate on the uh, Spanish slave trade on how much of the slave trading was in existence before Europeans arrived. Some people think that it started with the Spanish coming in and others saying, no, it, w- it was around before they ever got here among the Native Americans. It just increased. The, the Utes around in this area, they dominated the uh, slave trade. They would raid both Paiutes and Shoshone and w- they would trade with Spanish traders. For, you know, they would s- trade slaves for all sorts of... Uh, you know, supplies, horses, uh, guns, ammunition, gunpowder. Yeah, it was a thriving uh, economic force for the Utes, and especially for Wakara. He was deeply involved in it. And much of his power was more or less dependent on getting these, these slaves. So I don't want to get too far ahead, but you can imagine ending that was quite a big deal to him. And the height of the Great Basin slave trade was in the early 1850s, just as the Mormons are getting here and decide to, that maybe that's something they shouldn't be doing anymore. Do you want me to get into the Mormons' involvement in that yet? or what? Um, Yeah, yeah, this is a good time to do that. So let's talk about that because I think, you know, a lot of American history focuses, rightly so, on the transatlantic slave trade, but very little is known about the... Indian slave trade, the Mexican slave trade, and Mormons' involvement in it. Yeah, so the, to start, uh, Young encouraged the purchasing of slaves. I mean, there was a couple reasons he gave for that. Uh, one was redemption. This was part of redeeming the Lamanites. Uh, although I, I do have to say, the whole con- the whole theological background of the Lamanites and Native Americans like, rarely seems to come up. In the correspondence or much to do in the Utah area. Uh, it, it seems like Mormons gave up on that whole thing by the time they got here. And you can read more about that in Armin Moss's book. Another reason was the they started, they saw it as a way of saving these people from what would have been a worse life. So they, they take them in and, you know, supposedly they'll treat them well. And uh, so at the, at the beginning, young, uh, Brigham Young starts saying, yeah, we should uh, buy these slaves. And there was a lot of, uh, they, they had some brutal ways to uh, 
get more to persuade, help persuade Mormons to buy them. There's several stories. Arapine shot one to motivate Mormons to buy, you know, he shot one and not the other so that they would buy the other one. He smashed an infant on the ground and uh, it, it was all the, I mean, it's a very, it's a quite brutality. I mean, brutality is, uh, you, you know, is something I guess it just comes with the whole concept of slavery. The, the Mormons were buying these slaves until 1851. Brigham Young decided that the whole thing just needed to end. And part of, part of the reason was they felt that the whole slave trade was arming the Utes because they would trade among the, the Mexicans down in New Mexico and other other forces and, and able to get guns and ammunition. And that's what Brigham Young didn't want. There's always a uh, power struggle between Young and Wakara. Young decided he wanted this whole thing to end, and it and it became illegal in late 1851 after the trial of Don Pedro Lujan. Um, there's a great book about that whole thing. I just want to point out that there, I mean, we sort of have these romanticized ideas about the the frontier and how Native Americans functioned. And it was, we have to understand that we're talking about centuries of Spanish colonization that led to generational violence. And by the time the Mormons arrived, a lot of these bands were sort of acclimated to a really, really brutal way of s- survival because of the generational trauma that they had experienced from, you know, the colonization of the Spanish, basically. I mean, that's super, super reductive, but that's sort of Ned Blackhawk's thesis. Well, and uh, some bands like the Paiutes down south were actually, they were very friendly to the Mormons and welcomed them in and partly in hopes that they could protect them from the uh, Utes, such such as Wakara, who was one of their biggest enemies. Yeah, and you're right in the sense that Mormons Mormons had were put in a bad position in the sense that they didn't want to buy Native American slaves, and yet they were sort of coerced and forced to at some point. Like you said, these these ideas that these slave traders would horribly and violently like abuse or beat these slaves to encourage Mormons to buy them. I mean, I remember hearing one outside of the Fort Utah, I think, where they would, you know, cut wounds and put hot ash into the children outside the fort so they would hear the crying and the moaning as a way as a way to to buy it and you know some indigenous scholars and mormon scholars will point out that the utes had were almost upset and it almost made the problem worse that the mormons didn't want to buy slaves because this is how how these bands had survived and when the mormons come in and eat up all their crops and eat up all their other resources they really depended on slavery to function, and the Mormons took that away too. So with Brigham sort of reversing that, in some ways, it allowed for a short time, I would say, I mean, it's hard to say that slavery is an alternative to the slave traders, but oftentimes the Native Americans that were purchased were house servants and accepted in some ways as part of the family, but they were really at the mercy of whoever purchased them. Yeah, and there, there's lots of diverse accounts on how exactly they were treated in Mormon homes. Some, it does seem that they were treated as servants and others, yeah, they were taken in as part of the family. So, yeah, I mean, there's no broad 
brush really to paint paint it with. It's I mean, overall, I mean, slavery is a bad idea. As a side note, though, I I want to say that it's kind of become this hobby, if you will, of mine, where I'm collecting a list of any quote. Lamanite wives, uh, Native American women that were married as plural wives, or even monogamous wives, if you have them in your family history, I'm keeping just a running list because oftentimes these people would be taken into the homes as servants or purchased as slaves, and then they would end up marrying plurally as a wife. So I'm just trying to get those histories um, compiled. So if you want to email them to me, you can send them to uh, my email at the podcast email, which is listed on the website. Okay, so Ryan, let's get into the, the Walker War conflict. So give us a general overview of the war, and then let's get into sort of the things that got it started, how it started, and some of the events in it. Well, there were a lot of issues le- that led up to this. It, oftentimes, it seems uh, scholars have written about it that it was the outlaw of the slave trade, and then this war breaks out, and it, it really wasn't quite like that. There were there was a, you know an increase in Mormon settlements through you know very early on through fifty one and fifty two. They really started expanding south right into uh, Wakara's areas. You know, you had lots of land being taken. The the cows were eating up lots of their areas where, you know, the food or cattle. And then on top of all that, you have the slave trade gets outlawed. But he, he Wakara didn't initially, he, he didn't revert to violence, even though he was clearly frustrated about this whole thing. I think if I was to write this again, I'd write it a little bit differently because I, I write in my thesis that I think Wakara and Young were sincerely trying to live peacefully together. I, I'm going to say I think that's true, but it all depended on if the other was in the way of their power. You know, they wanted to live peacefully and use the other for their own, as long as the other doesn't get in their way. I mean, they were all for being peaceful. And I, and that's kind of the way I, I see it. I have a good, uh, you know, I, I talked last Sunstone with uh, Will Bagley about this and, and he compared them to mob bosses, two different mob bosses. I won't go quite that far, but, but, but I can kind of see where he's coming from. So you got this tense relationship where, you, yeah, they both want to, get along but they also don't want to really give in to the other and so you get chief wakara he you know he's always trying to keep he wants to stay on peaceful terms and so you know he doesn't initially get violent at all and he also spoke out of two sides of his mouth too he would tell brigham young you know oh yeah i I, I love the mormons i'm glad you're here but then he also had Indian agent Jacob Holman. He would say, no, nah, the, the Mormons, they're taking all my land. They're, they're forcing their way among my people. You know, you don't get, you get lots of some contradicting uh, messages from, from really how does Wakara see this? But I, I think he was probably being more honest with the Indian agent. I think he wanted to appease Brigham Young because he's got the, you know, he's got a lot of power, but uh, Henry Day, the other Indian agent in Utah at that time said even Soviet was getting mad at the Mormons. And he, 
you know, here's one of the real peaceful ones. Let me let me just ask you this really quick. So for our listeners who don't know, what was the function of Indian agents at this point? They were basically sort of your uh, middleman between the federal government and the Native Americans because this was a territory. So it was under the control of the federal government. And uh, so it wasn't it wasn't a state. And so federal government is who had the control. And so they were the ones here to, uh, you know, kind of measure what's going on with the, you know, Native Americans. And of course, the federal government also wants to keep an eye on the Mormons. And so, you know, here they probably, they functioned, you, they took on that function, which was even different than other territories because they're keeping an eye on two different sets of people. Yeah, my understanding is they started in the late, like, 1790s. They started out and then as as basically, like you said, an emissary from the government to interact with certain tribes. And at first, I think it was more about trade. And then it became more about property. And then I think in the uh, mid, like, 1800s, the agent of Indian affairs sort of developed us like a civil, almost like a deputized, like uh, they, they put more teeth behind the the power of Indian agents. So that would have been about the time when Mormons were interacting with them, when they had sort of this, you know, more bureaucratic uh, board that was ruled by an Indian agent under civilian jurisdiction. So, okay, so... Well, I mean, they were definitely kind of like land agents, at least in the Utah at that point, kind of what they're functioned as, because that, that seems to be what they were mainly kind of... Acting like your, uh, you know, your middle guy with the Native Americans, um, but they did wield some power. But at that time, you know, really young was still the guy in charge of uh, Indian affairs. Before the Walker War, do we have Mormons now that are appointed as Indian agents? I can't remember. Uh, there is one. Uh, yeah, in September 1850, Young appointed uh, three. Superintendent of Indian Affairs. Wait, no, no. Well, Young was was appointed Superintendent of Indian Affairs, and there were uh, sub agents. There was Jacob Holman and Henry R. Day. They were your non Mormon agents in the territory, and Stephen B. Rose was also in the territory, but he was he was a member. So Stephen B. Rose was your. Uh, and what was his what was his relationship with the Mormons? Well, he was, uh, you know, I can't say exactly when he joined the church necessarily. He was, he was a Mormon himself. He acted as an Indian agent, just like the others, only there wasn't, especially this time, he didn't report anything negative going on with the Native Americans like the other two, probably because of his loyalty to Brigham Young. Let's get back into the conflict. At first, uh, you've got like Will Bagley says, these mob bosses, if you will, but these these tribal leaders who are looking out for the best interests of their tribes and their families. And there might be a few problems from time to time, but everyone was sort of coexisting peacefully as long as there wasn't any major trouble. Yeah. And so, yes. So basically, you've ha- you've had over the past year, le- leading into July of 1853, you have all, you know, a lot of tension 
growing between the two sides with the uh, the furthering of settlement south and the ending of the slave trade. All it was going to take was some some event, some catalyst to really set this off. That's what happens in July of 1853. Uh, uh, and one, one other thing I ought to note, also leading up to this, you had a, a slave trader that had come into the area in April of 1853. There were orders went out to hunt this guy down and, you know, get him out of the area. And he gets killed. And Mormons say the Utes did it. Utes say the Mormons did it. And so you, you had this clamping down. Not, I mean, now the slave trade just wasn't illegal, but now you have an active force enforcing, enforcing it. By July of 1853, you've got this, uh, you know, major blazing fire between these two sides. And what what ha- ends up happening is, I should also mention, leading up to this, Wakara had, was interviewed by Jacob Holman, and he stated that he had never, he denied ever having invited the Mormons to settle his land. You know, I mean, that that's quite a popular, a well-known idea, concept that Wakara had invited the Mormons to settle his land. And then, and at this point, just before the Walker War breaks out, he claims that he never actually did do that. Uh, I, I do believe he actually did. I know that Forrest Kutch, you know, insists that he didn't, but uh, I, I do believe he did. Um, of course, what Walker's idea of the Mormons coming in settles land is not going to be the same thing as what Mormons would take it as they're coming in to cultivate it and use the resources. And I actually, one of the best things I I found was I I went to the national archives in uh, 2009. I was actually going over uh, depredation claims. I was trying to figure out, you know, how much Mormons were claiming to the government of what they lost during the Walker war. And I actually ran across this trial. Well, it was not necessarily a trial, but a hearing um, in October of 1897 with James Ivy, because he's he's doing these. Uh, he's claiming losses to Native Americans in 1855 uh, that he was robbed, and so the federal government owes him money. And one of the things they kept questioning questioning him on was, well, didn't you start this Walker War? And uh, so, in other words, they kept trying to say, well, you had these bad intentions with the Native Americans, so, you know, any problem you had, you brought upon yourself, and so they didn't want to pay out anything. Anyway, he gives a, uh, and as far as I know, I'm the only person that's ever cited this source. So he, in his own words, he tells what ha- what happened, and it's not much different than what we already knew from Gottfriedson's book. Basically, basically says two two Native Americans and a female came to his house wanting to trade some fish for flour. There was there was some dispute among the trade, and so one of the Native Americans starts beating the woman. Ivy gets jumps in 
takes a rifle from one of them and apparently gets broken in two and he hits two of them. Well, he hits, he hits all three of them because the, uh, the female Native Americans are attacking him too. And so he knocks them all down and one of them later identified as a shower old cats. But what Kara demanded was, he wanted Ivy's blood. He goes, you know, if, you know, if error, if he dies, all we'll do is we'll take Ivy and that's it. You know, so that this is what Wakara and Erapi want. You know, Ivy's the only one that has to die. Initially, uh, he, he doesn't die at first. He d- dies. Yeah. Hours later, word gets to Brigham Young about what happened. And in fact, Wakara, Actually, he's reported to have not wanted it even reported to Young. He wanted them to work it out amongst themselves, or as Arapine apparently wanted it, told the Brigham Young, hoping, supposedly hoping that would uh, help calm the situation. But Brigham Young writes back that he believes that the IB acted in self-defense, and so no, they're not going to give him up to him. This is... Basically, what starts the war is Shower Cats dies, and there there are several attempts to negotiate a peace with giving. You know, it's, it seems like whenever, especially among young, and I wish I would have picked up on this whilst I was writing it, that whenever there's a the problem to Native Americans, he just has this idea: well, if I just give them some gifts and some tobacco and presents. That that'll suffice it. No, almost like you know, you give your kids something to get them to go away. It almost seems like that's what Young was always trying to do. I, I didn't pick up on that when I first did this, but they couldn't get there. There, they couldn't reach an agreement. The war really breaks out when uh, the Utes react to this, and they end up killing a guy named Alexander Keel. In fact, I wonder if I, I could be related to him. I'm related to some kills. I've never checked. Then the, he's standing guard in pace, and then they end up killing him. The uh, Conway Stone, he wrote probably the best biography about Wakara. They sure could use another one because he's kind of old. But And he, he writes after the killing of uh, Alexander Kill that if Walker had any hope of avoiding war, it vanished with that shot at Fort Payson. There was no turning back now. The Walker War was on. You know, that's from Conway Sohn. And pretty, that's pretty much correct. Once they kill the Kill, you know, the, the Mormons are going to retaliate. And so that's really the beginning of the war. Okay. Yeah. So that's a, that's a really good start of that. Then tell us what happens next. All right. Well, Colonel Conover, he's the militia commander in, uh, Provo and Colonel Markham, Stephen Markham, further south in Payson. They're ordered to go out and try to hunt down Wakara and his men and Chief Arapine. You know, anyone they can find that's causing these problems. They're, Went on these parties basically for a month from about July 17th into mid-August. You know, they report back at finding some cattle killed and a few things. You know, not a lot happens in that first little while. So during, during these expeditions by Steve, by Markham and Conover, Markham reportedly he kills six Native Americans. It, it's hard to know really how many 
Native Americans actually get killed at the end of this. The uh, reports are kind of sparse. Now, the main thing these were doing were attacking the cattle and stealing cattle. That was always sort of their, what they would do. Almost like real warfare. I mean, they know they're outgunned, and so they their point is to aggravate. In in August, Wells writes to Markham and Conover, Dale H. Wells, to come, that these expeditions need to end. And this is when the policy of defense and re- reconciliation is ordered. That no no more acting on the offensive. They're now to build forts, and they were no longer to pursue the Native Americans any longer. And the settlements were ordered to protect livestock and to ship some, uh, ship a lot of their livestock up to Salt Lake City for protection. This had a lot of impact on the uh, territory. Everywhere from Ogden all the way down to Cedar City was ordered to port up. I mean, Ogden was a long ways away from the entire conflict, and yet they were supposed to port up as well. And I was able to go through a lot of uh, different diaries and reminiscences. A lot of them I just found by accident in the church archives. And they describe you know, tearing them out. They had to tear down their house, use it as part of the fort. And they was very, you know, not, it wasn't the most comfortable living conditions. And it was, you know, economically troubling to do all this. You know, when people look at this conflict, it's just kind of a small, you know, there's all these just little skirmishes with the Native Americans. To those who are involved, you know, on both sides, I mean, it's unfortunately, I don't have a lot of access to what was going on in the Native Americans. I mean, they, they were greatly impacted by this entire conflict. And so while, it, I mean, yeah, hundreds of people didn't get, get killed, but it, it was not a small deal to the territory. It was, it was, it was quite big. One thing I should note, for the most part, the women and children, my, such as in Payson, they were, uh, put into the schoolhouse whilst the men would stand guard. But, uh, a lot of women actually had to stand guard as well because there just wasn't enough of them enough men to do the 24 hour yeah. around the world. So yeah, so women were involved in this, just so you know. No, and I appreciate you bringing that up because we don't hear a lot about that. I mean, one of the things that is frustrating when we're doing this history to even write about Native Americans, we hardly get names, right? We know all the names of all the Civil War soldiers on both sides. But with Native Americans, we don't know the names of the dead and then trying to find women and, and names and information about them and Mormonism is hard, and let alone, you know, Native Americans. Oh, yeah, it's, it is unfortunate. I, w- I really wanted to act, get access to, you know, the Native American side of this, but you, the only way you get to it is reminiscences from Mormons talking with the Native Americans. You know, they, they just didn't write things down. And so, Almost, almost no matter what, it's it's going to be a one-sided history. And with you know, and as far as the yeah, with the women, I mean, I know women stood guard, but I, I couldn't really tell you give you the names of those that did because it was just it was in a letter and a reminiscence, just saying it. Yeah, they didn't offer 
exactly who. And it should also, I, I think this entire conflict, because this is the, this initial order to move into forts and to move cattle to the north into Salt Lake City, a lot of people, they didn't obey that. They didn't like it. And some even left the territory and were excommunicated. I think the important thing here is, and and, and you'll and this will come up more. Young didn't have this quite the dictatorial control that some people think he did have. People, Mormons went against what he said plenty of times, and uh, so while he may have said, you know, said bird couldn't fall without him knowing that. I think that's his idealization, but no, he didn't have a hundred percent control over uh, Mormons down south. You know, especially the further they were away. That's interesting. Uh, You're one of the first people I've heard sort of argue for that. I uh, yeah, I've uh, <laughs> I know Ron Walker. You know, unfortunately, he's passed now. He thought that was you know not not. That young didn't have near the control that some people think he did. And he was writing a biography of young. It's too bad he's gone now. But yeah, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think he had the type of control some people think he did. That's fascinating. Okay, so what else should we know about the conflict? Well, very early on, as early as July 22nd. So you're only into this war 10, well, gosh, less than a week. Wakara is, he's reportedly gone east. And then later on, he, he's reported to be in Colorado. And so he's, oddly enough, he, if we can trust the reports, he is not present for hardly any of the conflict. Uh, yet we do call the Walker War, which is something I, I bring up. Um, in my actual thesis that may, it might be mislabeled because he not, does not seem to really be involved in it. But he does, he does send some messages asking for peace. He, uh, wants, he, you know, he does want to get this settled with Brigham Young and, and Young wants the same thing. And, it, and this is all within days of the starting. So, it, you know, you have these two sides fighting and the leaders at least appear on the surface to want mutual, still want mutual cooperation, but they don't get it. There was one, in fact, what one Native Americans even said in, in an interview that Wakara wanted peace, but he didn't have control over his men. So just like Young didn't have complete control, either did Wakara. In fact, there's multiple times Young complains that his orders were not being obeyed and that they were pursuing after the Native Americans. And so you do have that. Along that same note about how Wakara wasn't there, see, in late August, he's said to have gone to Colorado and Nephi Smith, said that Wyona, um, again, supposedly a brother, but I don't know if it's his actual, Wakar's actual brother, was actually the one carrying on the war. And so really he had been, he was gone as early as July 22nd, was said to be hiding among the Spaniards on July 27th, and at the end of August, he's supposedly in Colorado. And so that's why I say, you know, Wakar is not super involved. 
some other major things that happened. There was 200 cattle stolen from the All Red Settlement. And that whole settlement ended up being abandoned during the war. And, uh, and is the, it assumed that the the Indians took the cattle, or yeah, 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 okay. the, the Americans came and took two hundred. That, that was a and that was a big deal to uh, the, the Mormon side. I mean, that's a lot of cattle, and that actually got Daniel H. Wells to order out some patrolling parties to patrol the mountains between Salt Lake Valley and Provo. Uh, you know, so he kind of went back on to a little bit of offensive rather than just defensive there because it's a big loss. That's your livelihood back then for these cattle. So who took it? Oh, oh the youths did. Yes, were they able to track it down and find? I was just yeah. wondering if if sometimes these stories were. I I, I can imagine it, it was just a complicated time, so I just didn't um, know if there was. I, I don't think. I, I mean, I don't think the stories made up. Uh, numbers get exaggerated, uh, so it may not have been two hundred. But as a result of it, Wells did order out these uh, patrolling parties trying to find these, and no, they, no, they don't get them back. At least not that I know of. See, see, in September of 1853, it's reported that Arapine's now running the war and that Wakar is still gone. And, you know, which is kind of an interesting point for me. One event that, that definitely deserves some attention is uh, the, the morning of October 2nd, George W. Bradley, he reported that he had invited seven men and one Indian woman into the fort at Nephi. And he asked them to lay down their arms and they refused. And they reacted by shooting at, shooting at the Mormons and the Mormons and had to return fire and kill them. Now, there are some differences on the exact number of the Native Americans that were there and how many children. But one thing that came out a short time later was that what actually happened, the Mormons actually invited them in to this uh, place and then just simply executed them. And this was in reaction to recently, there were some other, a couple of Mormons brutally killed you know with you know access to the heads and some pretty brutality and so you know that was that was kind of their reaction but the the initial letter claimed that they came in and attacked really they were just simply brought in and executed and i and and this was uh some years later that that came out and i i do think that that's probably what happened I, i don't think uh you'd lie about that so yeah, let me let me speak to that for a minute because I think so often the way that I grew up, you know, as a descendant of one of these settlers, the narrative that we were taught was it was just sort of cowboys and Indians. They were just out there and sometimes people got killed because it was the Wild West. But the stories are I think the reason why this is such a hard thing and Mormons involvement in it is there were people of conscience that that felt like this was bad, you know, even even as this spread beyond the Mormons, this idea that you could bring in 
an Indian head or things like that. There were people that were really opposed to that and were made uncomfortable. So it wasn't like it was just this huge pervasive idea that you could, you know, torture and kill Indians and it would be totally fine. But I do think that Mormons had to do it partially out of survival, but some of it was just excessive and and brutal and and wrong, you know, things we would consider war crimes today. Oh, oh yeah, there no doubt about it. No doubt about it. There's sometimes it was defense, but oftentimes it was just simple. I mean, in case in case like this, you know, I mean, I I know it was in reaction to something that happened, but still, I mean, that's not generally something you do. Is just gun people down, and, and they know it's wrong too because that's not what they reported. So you know, if you have to lie about it, then even you know it's wrong. Yeah, that's fascinating. I I wonder, do we know was there any consequence for someone who spiritual or legal at the time for Mormons? If they do, you have any recollection of anyone being punished or chastised for? No, I, I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, it, it's possible I, I missed something like that, but I, I, I don't think anyone was punished for, for this. It was more just a social idea that this was a brutality you didn't talk about. Yeah, it was a war. This is what happened. Well, I mean, we still have, this is something I've talked about before when, and this is why it's personal for me. And, you know, my family's from San Pete County and you will go to the, the cemeteries there and the headstones will have this uh, Indian uh, war, the Walker war little like button on their headstones. Or sometimes it's, it's carved in that they were a veteran of that war or it just says Indian war. It, you know, I was taught like these brave men, <laughs> all they did. And, but when you read some of this stuff, some of it was just awful. Well, it wasn't only really off. I mean, a lot of these, like these buttons, I mean, they, they seemed really to want to go out of their way to get rewarded by the federal government for all these awesome things they did in these uh, Indian conflicts. And I mean, and, and they also wanted all sorts of payment back because it's the federal government's job to pay them, you know, and everything lost. I mean, they claimed like up to $2 million. Yeah. At the end of my thesis, I, I talked a little bit about you know they they want these awards and i'm sure that's what the, what these buttons are on these uh graves these people wanted to be rewarded you know and they're very proud of their participation in this walker war and i don't know because i i read some of these claims to get these awards and it just i don't know see a single glory seeking but this is why I wanted to talk about this on a polygamy podcast. Sometimes people say, oh, sometimes your episodes don't have anything to do with polygamy. And I'm like, no, actually it does. Because polygamy and crime is tied into this violence. And I think that, you know, there's so many connections how the two intersect. Because on the one hand, Mormons were outlaws, right? They were they were breaking the law. They They were doing things that were being punished. They were under great suspicion. And yet the way that we talk about them, especially the way that I understood them, were to be these like genteel heroes, right? <laughs> and a very patriotic Americans who were good upstanding citizens. And yet that is not how America viewed them. And so they come in here and in some ways they're more aligned with 
these indigenous cultures than than a lot of any other group because they're both marginalized. They're both enemies to the U.S. government. And yet this violence just keeps playing out. And I just think that's fascinating. Yeah, that's and that's one thing I, I conclude is, uh, well, as far as overall, you know, where does Utah fit in the overall Western expansion with Native Americans is for the Native Americans, it's it's a the same story you know they ended up getting removed to reservations forcibly and so for them it's you know the utah story is really no different on the mormon side though they they lose too you know they didn't want to be controlled by the federal government they did not have a lasting theocracy established and so really in the end as far as the territory goes I mean, Native Americans were the biggest loser, but, and I mean loser as in lost their stuff, not, not the majority loser. And, but the Mormons lost, you know, what they were looking for as well. That's, I mean, that's an interesting point that I hadn't thought about, but yeah, it really did. I mean, maybe you could argue that federal takeover was inevitable, but this, this certainly amplified that. Oh, yeah. So, okay, we're getting on in time here. Um, what else do we need to know? How can you wrap this up for us? I know it's there's a lot of little skirmishes, so why don't you just go through the, the ones that are the most important? Well, ba- ba- basically, uh, that's uh, the end of... Uh, see, that was in October. That's basically the last major... I, well, there is the killing of John Merlin Gunnison down south. That is one of the biggest events that happened, but it's not related actually to the Walker War. It is just something that occurred at the same time. But that had okay, so that had some lasting effects on the territory overall. And so you really you won't read about the Walker War without hearing about that, even though it's not really related. Yeah. Okay, so that is interesting because I kind of always understood that the Walker War encompassed all of the Indian conflicts, but you're saying that the characterization is anything that had to do with the initial politics, not just all of the other skirmishes that happened at the time. So are you saying that I just thought that all Indian conflicts during that time period were considered the Walker War? And you're saying, no, like the Gunnison Massacre had to do with different political reasons, right? Is that what you're saying? Yes. I just never heard that before. So that's cool. Don't think I'm the first person to say that. No, um, you're, you're probably not. I, I'm certainly not an expert on this. So I, it's just a misunderstanding that I had about it. I just kind of assumed it was the major massacres were part of that. Yeah. And I, it's something that's always, I'm trying, it might be Thomas. I, I don't know. I, I know I ran across it a couple of times where they, they'll mention it as, you know, this, but it was a big deal, but that it really, wasn't related to what was going on with Wakara. And I don't think it was. It seems to have been a uh, separate thing that happened, not not because of what was going on with Wakara's youths. Okay, got it, got it. Okay, so Gunnison Massacre, what else? Um, you know, not much really happens from then until they negotiate their peace. In May of 1854, and and what what causes that to happen? Well, the Walker well, comes back to the area, and he 
sends note to Young and he wants to meet with him. And so Young comes down, they meet at Chicken Creek. And, and they really hadn't been fighting much, you know, really since October. And, uh, it, it, it seems more of a formality because the, they seem that things had really calmed down anyway. And so they negotiated peace. You know, like I was saying, Young seems to always give stuff. Well, of course, well, Carl wanted, likes to get stuff too. So that's why you gave him some presents. And, uh, that was basically the end of the war. Well, Carl didn't live much longer after that. He died that next January. What wasn't there? There's a story of him being baptized, right? Yes. So he, he joins and he's given. He also he gets ordained an elder as well. Yeah, so tell us about that. I believe he was baptized in 1849. Now, uh, was Sally Kanash... No, Sally Kanash was given to a different chief. But isn't there a... like a, I thought there was plural marriage involved somehow. Like, did well, he have uh, plural wives that were native? Wakara um, thought Brigham Young should give him a wife. Okay, but he never did because it's Sally Kanash that went to Kanash. Yes. Okay. Yeah. For yeah, so every yeah. once in a while, I get it mixed up and think that she was given to him, but I don't think that that's true. Let me. Yeah. Okay. Well, because I mean, yeah, they were. Uh, you know this. You know, if you read some of what Armand Moss had written about race and Mormons, that they wanted you know marrying Native Americans wasn't always discouraged. But they're not going to, you know, give a wife to Wakara because he wants to be rewarded one. Um, so, so they did deny him that. Here's the story uh, that brings in Wakara. So Sally Kanash, it says, during one of the meetings be- between Brigham Young and Kanash, Kanash saw Sally and offered a band of ponies for her. This is, this is the story, right? He was, uh, she was insulted and refused on June 8, 1866. Sally and Kanash were married by Dimmick Huntington. They lived in central Utah in what was now Kanash, Utah. It is not clear why Sally married Kanash. Gates indicates that Sally was given a choice and after initial rejection changed her mind when Kanash rescued her from Wakara. Mueller indicates there is no evidence that Wakara ever took Sally or that she chose to marry Kanash. He believes she was married to strengthen the alliance between Kanash and Brigham Young and that Sally uh, was either unwilling or reluctant. Ten years after her marriage, Sally died. There is some evidence that she might have been killed by another wife of Kanash who's jealous of her. So, yeah, I knew Wakara had been brought into that story somehow. So I guess the myth perpetuated by Susan Gates, uh, Brigham Young's daughter, who was a sort of a childhood friend of Sally and took her in, kind of raised Sally, who Wakara somehow kidnapped her in this romantic attempt or something. And I don't think that that happened. What year did it say that? That's That was in the 1870s, so it's after the fact. Kanash and Sally were uh, married in 1877, and, and I'm just ripping this straight off from Wikipedia, so this is just Wikipedia right now. Yeah, I just, I remember that Wakara was involved somehow. Well, because Wakara's dead by 1855. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Easily, easily debunked right there, yeah. Okay, so, um, so he wanted, he maybe considered a plural, plural wife at the time, but not that, so he was at least ordained, though. Okay, he was ordained an elder in June of 1850, and I believe he was baptized in 1849. 
which I assume was really just a act of friendship. Really, I don't. I don't think he, uh, you know, was planning on becoming a god one day and all that stuff. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. And so he dies. How does he die? Is it relevant to the Mormon story? Uh, well, he dies. All that's said that about him dying is it was some issue with his lungs. It's, yeah, so he died on January 29th and what was said to be lung fever. You know, I'm not sure exactly what that would be, but just something to do with uh, he had a hard time breathing. And, well, here's some, uh, here's some bizarre stuff. So he dies, and, you know, he seems to have died on good terms with Brigham Young. But here's what ha- how what's reported, you know, about his burial is two Paiute women, three children, and 20 horses were killed as sacrifice. And a boy of 10 or 12 years old was buried alive with him to watch over the body. So that's... Uh, so, I yeah, let me tell you about that. I In Stanley... Kimball's bio of Heber C. Kimball. It's called Heber C. Kimball, Mormon Patriarch and Pioneer. This gives you a sense of how Mormons understood and told that story because this is a very Mormon account. It says, about yeah. 10 months after the Walker War began, the Indians the Indians were ready to discuss peace. During May 1854, Brigham and Heber visited the Ute camp to talk with Chief Wakara, who was also a Mormon elder. The chief's daughter was sick, and he had ordered that if the child died, an Indian woman must be killed to accompany her spirit to the next world. This was no idle threat, for Wakara, on at least one previous occasion, had two captive children killed in the hope of relieving his own pain. At times, the Utes even buried live children with a corpse to keep it company and to be servants in the next life. When Wakara did die eight months later, two Indian women, three children, and 20 horses were slain and entombed, along with the one live boy as Wakara's companions to the happy hunting ground. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's kind of the account from Stanley Kimball. Yeah, so... Do we know, it was that an actual practice of the Utes? Everything I've read about the Utes, uh, I mean, sacrifice, and, I mean, it seemed to be an occasional thing, but I, I didn't... Uh, wasn't you know like a super common if anyone out there actually knows uh, out, i want to hear um accounts from historians that are outside of mormonism at least as the as the source because i think mormons really did understand the native americans in a way that's not always true to life and it's probably you know as a way that they made sense of their own role as settlers in in this whole thing but okay so sorry to get us off on that tan- tangent well, what else do we need to know? What's the lasting impact of the Walker War? During the Walker War, Young ends up deciding he wants federal government help to remove the Native Americans from basically their lands so that they can settle them. So it started, the biggest impact on it is the Brigham uh, Young wanting, basically wanting federal help to deal with the Native Americans. You know, you, you know, he usually wants to be isolated. He doesn't really want, you know, any involvement from the federal government. You have that also is set up the precedent for acting on the, even though, you know, it wasn't 100% defensive, you know, the whole bill of courts only be on the defensive. It did set up the, that, it seemed they did. They saw it as a success 
the Mormons did and that that worked. And so, you know, years later during the Black Hawk War, they implement that same tactic again to, you know, only, you know, go to forts, only act on the defensive and try to reconcile because it seems to have worked in the Walker War. Fascinating. Yeah. And, and just as I know about to go back to the animal or the human sacrifices really quick, I, I'm just looking at an article with some like, Brian Fagan and my, and Michael Coe and, and folks like that who are talking about how earlier narratives of imperialism sort of took old like Mayan and Aztec gods and superimposed this propagandist identity of them being these like you know, requiring these human sacrifices. So often Native Americans were depicted as their god of the dead asking for a human sacrifice, even though there was actual literal, little to no evidence of that in actual tribal beliefs. So, oh. sorry, we got on a, ta- a tangent again. But okay, anything else you want to say about impact? It shows Utah fits the Western expansion narrative just like just like everywhere else. You know, as Ned Blackhawk points out, it was, you know, violent. You know, that's kind of, actually, I think his thesis is a little simplistic, but, um, but, you know, that uh, violence is what basically created the American West and it's what brought the Great Basin together. Uh, Patricia Limerick, her book about the American West, like we see a conquest, you know, it definitely fits that. So, you know, some, you know, there's been uh, in the past people talk about Utah's the the Ameri- the donut, the American West. You know, where people talk about everything around it, but not Utah, because that's everyone just seems to think it's different, but it's really not. And uh, this is a good case study of that. It's same same type of conflicts. Well, perfect. Thank you so much for coming on, Ryan. Are we going to see you? What What's next for you? Um, well, right now I am uh, hard at work trying to prepare my presentation for Sunstone. It's coming up, but when this airs, it'll be a week away. So you can come meet Ryan. You can uh, challenge him on anything he said or come and shake his hand. He'll be at Sunstone when we have a ton of people. I'll be there. So it's going to be July 31st to August 3rd at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. And you can register at sunstone.org. See? Do you see how I'm promoting my own event here. Perfect. Good segue for me. Okay. So, uh, Ryan, thanks again for coming on. Now, this is, this was a super fun conversation for me and you brought up some ideas, interesting ideas. I think I just had never thought about before. So, so thank you for that. And, um, yeah, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening. <laughs>